pursued them and he came after them. Um, and if you'll remember, last time I was here, so two weeks ago, we started talking about sin and the, in, uh, the fall into sin when mankind turned away from God and what that looked like. And tonight we're going to talk about that again, kind of the second of three as we talk about uh, sin and the fall. And we're going to look at a passage in Jeremiah. Okay? Now, let me give you a little background to get us to where we are today because it will help a lot. Last time I was here, we talked about Adam, Adam and Eve. So we we're in the Garden of Eden in the beginning of everything. A lot has happened since then to bring us to Jeremiah. Um, God, uh, between now and then, God called a people out, out from the rest of the world. Uh, and his, the name of this people was Israel. And he set apart Israel and told Israel and said, you are going to go out into the world and be a light to them. And you are going to reflect me in the way that you do things. The namely that God is a good God. And so Israel is supposed to be, they were supposed to be good. And they were supposed to be kind to their neighbors. And they were supposed to be generous to those around them. And they were supposed to show things about God himself. Namely his kindness and his goodness and his provision. Um, but what happened is that uh, Israel was taken into bondage in Egypt for about 400 years. Okay? But God came and rescued them from Egypt. And this is history. This is verifiable history. Um, God came and rescued them from Egypt through a series of wonders and miracles. Okay, then Israel comes out and wanders around the wilderness. And during that time, right after they had been rescued uh, from the bondage to the Egyptians, right after they had seen all these miracles, the, the Israelites started following other gods. They started worshiping things other than Yahweh or the God of the Bible. And God wasn't happy with them for this. And um, he uh, made their time in the wilderness longer than he said he was going to because of what they had done. But nonetheless, he comes to the game and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver you. And I'm going to give you a land that's a wonderful land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, it's, it has fruits and it, has, it can support life and produce and all these things. And so the people, right after hearing this word, they go into the land and take it over. And again, they give themselves over to other gods, to false gods, to idols. And that's where we find it in tonight, is that Jeremiah, God has sent this prophet named Jeremiah to go talk to the people. He, Jeremiah is the mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel. And we're going to get a little ear in on what uh, God is wanting to tell his people. And it's not pretty uh, about as he talks about their sin. So if you would, look down and follow with me. Um, Jeremiah chapter 2, 5, and I'll go down, we'll skip a little bit and end up in 25. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord... Now, Jeremiah's talking to Israel. He says, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after idols and became idolatrous? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in the land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods at all? But my people have changed their glory for, what, for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness and her heat sniff the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. This is God's word. Let's pray before we consider it. God in heaven, uh, we come to you. You're the same God who spoke to your people saying these things, uh, and they weren't words that would have been easy to hear then, and they're not words that are really easy to hear tonight. So I pray that through this time you would um, profit us by sending your spirit so that we might understand them, so we might uh, turn and be changed. Lord, we don't, we don't want to be the same. And we have things in our lives that we hold on to that we would love to let go. And I pray that you would show yourself in a fresh way to us tonight so that we might look to you in hope that we might be different. We pray and trust uh, through Jesus' name. Amen. Um, how many of y'all have ever been overseas, and you can raise your hands, overseas or to a foreign country, maybe on a missed trip or a vacation or something like that? Uh, somewhere where there's like the big market, bizarre place where you go and look at all the junk that they have to offer, right? So half or so. Okay, you know the scene, and even if you haven't, you may know the scene. You, whether you're getting off the, the cruise ship at a port or kind of coming in the middle of a city, there's usually these huge open-air markets. And vendors come and display all their crafts and their wares and things they've made. And inevitably, most of it's junk, let's be honest. Especially when they know it's the place for tourists to come. It's all just little figurines and ceramic deals. And um, I was in Africa a few years ago uh, on a mission trip in Ethiopia. And I got sucked in one of these places. It wasn't hard because I was a tourist. And I was like, oh, these things are amazing. I'll put them on my shelf and on my bookcases and I'll love them. And it will remind me of the time that I was there and all this stuff. But some of this stuff is just weird, right? Like, you start looking at these wooden figurines, it's like, I don't know what that is, but like they're, it's just not looking right. Um, lots of weird-shaped bodies and body parts. It's, it's pretty weird. Um, but, you know, as I sat there and as I kind of look at these things, and even as I probably bought them, I was thinking, well, surely this is what the Bible talks about when it's talking about idols, right? And when the people of God in the Old Testament would worship idols, Surely he's talking about these things, like little figurines that you'd set on the mantle, or <clears throat> things that people would kind of craft and then bow down to and worship. And while there may be an aspect to that, which I think is true, um, I think that uh, the Bible, when it talks about idols, is actually talking not just about that, about things that kind of come to us from the world or things we can buy. When the Bible talks about idols and idolatry, it talks about the heart. It talks about idols of the heart, or things, as one pastor put it, uh, things that, um, anything more important to you than God. Anything that, you, that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God does. Or anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. 
And John Calvin, who said some helpful things about Christianity and some things that weren't all that great, but who said something really helpful on this. He said, our minds are like idol factories. That our minds in and of themselves are like idol factories. That we have the capability because of sin and because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden that we're polluted by sin and we're tainted by this. And therefore, we don't even need to like go buy something and start worshiping it. We do it ourselves. We'll talk about what this looks like later on. But just to kind of demystify this notion of idols. Because I thought about it wrongly for a long time, but Scripture is talking about way more than just things that you would set on the mantle or anything like that. So with that kind of working definition about idols and idolatries and things like this, um, I want to look at a couple things and then look at Jeremiah's passage and see if we can't learn from what he tells um, the people of Israel. The first thing I want us to see is that our idols and the things that you and I create kind of as false gods or in God's image that they do uh, several things. The first is that they make us forget about God. They make us forget about God. And we see that as it happened in Israel uh, down this passage. Um, look down at verse 13. Um, and we've just read it, but it says, uh, the prophet Jeremiah says that there are two evils here at work in Israel. And it, both of these things are related to the idolatry as, as Jeremiah starts in verse 5. The first thing is that Israel has forsaken God. Okay, Israel has forsaken God. He has, they have forgotten God. God, the God who did all these wonderful things. How would they do that? How could they be so crazy and so stupid to turn from a God who had just done all these miraculous things, had turned water into blood, and had brought gnats and all these things on Egypt to deliver them, and then who had, in delivering them into the promised land, wiped out whole armies before them with, before they even picked up a sword? He would just wipe people out because he was giving them this land. And these people, are, they're forgetting him. They're leaving him. They're, for, they're forsaking him. Look down in verses 6 through 8. It says, uh, they, and he's talking about your fathers or the people's ancestors, did not say, right, when they came into the land, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness? And down in verse 8, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baals went after things that don't profit. The people whose whole story, their whole identity was in their deliverance from captivity, they are now turning from the God who delivered them. And they're forgetting Him. They're leaving Him on the shelf. And y'all, it was bad. It had gotten bad. The pastors in the churches weren't even talking about God. Like, I don't know what else you talk about if you're Israel and your whole identity is on this deliverance and this God who loves you. And you go to temple and to the tabernacle like, I don't know what else you talk about, but it would be equivalent to us going to church on Saturday morning or Sunday morning and, um, and, and not hearing the name of Jesus or not hearing God or anything like that. That's what was happening in Egypt. Things had gotten very bad. Okay, and it's because Israel had forgotten their God. And we're thinking, um, how could they have forgotten those things? Jeremiah's answer to them is this. This is how you forget them is because you have sought idols and you have become idolatrous, as it says in verse 5. Something had become more important to them than God. They had looked to other things to give them what only God could give them. They had turned to false gods and had become themselves idolatrous. You know, I can't remember, uh, there's a story, who was telling me about this, but it's somebody who had been through uh, med school and all these things. And they were telling me kind of this trend, and it's not new, but it's probably more prevalent in our day now that divorce is as rampant as it is. But this trend for um, people in med school that they would go and a lot of them would get married right before they entered med school. 
And then, you know, they'd be slated for eight years of torture, right? Four years of med school and then off to residency and some even longer than that with fellowships and the whole deal. And it's just awful. Like, you, the schooling is crazy hours. Then residency and the internship and all that, it's just bizarre. But they'd get married. But by the time they got out and they'd be taking their first jobs and, you know, and be making, most of them, a lot of money, they would leave those wives. They would leave the wives who put them through this terrible time this very difficult time through thick and thin, the ones who had been by their side. And by the time these doctors came out and had power and prestige and money, they would leave the wives of their youth. And they would go after the hot new nurse in the office. Or, um, or the women would go after a guy or, who would pay them more attention or whatever it was. And look, I'm not, just, I'm not saying this even primarily at all to talk about doctors and their shortcomings. Um, although it sounds like that. Um, <coughs> because it can happen with anybody. Really, it happens all across the board. That people leave uh, the, the wives of their youth or the people of their youth for new and better things. And they forget what those people had gone through with them. They forget how they, that, that wife or that husband laid his life down or her life down again and again and maybe worked at a job they didn't like to provide for the, their husband or spouse, whatever it is. But they come out and they forget and they run after something new. They run after the newest thing on the block. And that's what Israel had done. They had gone after other lovers in the land. And when this happened for Israel, when they forgot God, and when we ourselves forget God, and when this happens to us and we try to live for other things, and when we long for something in life more than we long for God, Scripture gets pretty graphic in verse 20. and says that when this happens... We're laying, our, we're laying ourselves out like a whore. Literally what it's saying. That we're laying out, saying, come and get me. I'm here for the taking. Come ravish me. And that's there. <laughs> that's really in there. And this is a picture of what God thinks about our idolatry and the things that we run to other than Him. It's, it's ugly. And the picture is very clear. Why would Israel do this? in their sin, and thinking through all these things. They, they would thought that these new gods and these things they would pursue other than Yahweh or the true God, they thought that they would fulfill them. That they would be good. But friends, why do we do this? Isn't it really the same? Don't we ourselves run after, you name it, resumes, relationships, approval from others, trying to get into a certain grad school, a certain grade in a class. What is it? I mean, what is it that you look to day in and day out which functionally has your heart, which you will run to all the time and in essence worship and say, I will do whatever it takes to please you, to get from you what I think you can give me, life or a grade or that feeling again, whatever it is. See, we think these other things will satisfy us. And we think that they will fulfill us. And we think that when I give my heart to those things, or when I give my time and my effort and my energy, my whole self to those things, that they will fulfill me. And because of this, we struggle to believe the gospel or what the Bible says every day. I have a mentor who would always tell us and tell me and say, um, we just barely understand the gospel or the message of Christianity because what it says is this, is that there is a God who loves us through our idolatry, 
that he persists in the midst of our running after everything but him. And we have to remember that day after day. That the Christian story is not about a God who gets frustrated and runs the other way. But rather he pursues us. And in Scripture and in Jeremiah, he would pursue his people. And we'll see that here in a little bit. He doesn't let them go, but he pursues them and comes after them. You see, from day to day, we long for these other things. And we forget that there is a God in heaven who longs to ravish us with His love and with His mercy and with His patience and His forgiveness. And friends, that kind of ravishing is one that we need. We need to be overtaken by a God who loves us in that way. But we struggle with that because we forget Him. We forget about that God. But not only do our idols make us forget about God, our idols themselves are false gods. The in and of themselves are false gods. So what do I mean? Think about it like this. Um, think, I've been fishing in Colorado several times, not fly fishing. I would love to be a good fly fisherman, but I just don't have it in me. So I'd go like throw out a bobber in a river. Uh, and it looked like an idiot, but that's fine. Uh, I do it growing up with my dad and my brothers. And the place we would go in this little town called Kachera, there was this river. And inevitably in stream fishing, there would be spots where the, the water would pool. And there would kind of be like a side pool where it would gather and maybe it would be trickling out. But for the most part, it looked like a stagnant kind of body of water. And there would be kind of gross stuff floating on top. But then next to it would be the stream that actually carried, you know, water down from the snowpack or whatever it was. And would carry it down the mountain. Now look, I would always go fish in the stagnant water (laughs) because it was too hard to fish in the water that was running. I couldn't see anything beneath the current. I could never see if there was a fish there. Now, at least in looking in the stagnant pond, I could see that there wasn't a fish, and I still did it. Uh, I knew what was there or what wasn't there. I was like, it's just easier. I can throw my bobber out there and be, con- and be sure that nothing is going to get it. But, <coughs> so that's just what I did, and so I never caught fish, and so I hate fishing. Um, but that's what, I would, that's what would happen. Jeremiah, in verse 13, talks of two evils. Okay, I've already talked about one, that they, fors- they forsook God. They've forsaken Him. The people of Israel left Him, who describes Himself... God describes himself as the fountain of living waters. The fountain of living waters. And instead, they made for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, I mentioned this last semester, and that's fine if you weren't here, but a cistern in old days, in ancient Near East, was something that they would use to to store their water in below the surface, right? Because it would keep it from evaporating. It would keep it uh, mostly from contamination. They'd They'd seal it. But because of the climate back then, they would have to capture the rains during the rainy season and save them for the dry season that was definitely coming. And so they'd store them, and the cisterns were huge, huge underground clay kind of pots. Just think of a clay pot underground that they would dump their water into. And they would do elaborate sources of channeling to get the water in there whenever it rained. Okay. If we look at the second part of verses 8 through 12, Israel's God is utterly amazed at what's happening. He's utterly amazed they've gone to the cisterns. They've forsaken him and they've gone to these cisterns. Look down at that for a sec. He's saying, look at how good I've been to you. Look at the ways I've provided for you, the fruit in, the, in this new land and all these things. Look at the good land that I've given you. Has anyone, he says, go cross to, to over there and then go to Kedar over here, this big wide path of land. He's like, go, go throughout this whole land and see if anyone has been so, as stupid as you are to do what you're doing. He said, you're forsaking fresh water for that tepid water that sits in the cistern. 
But it's even worse than that. He says in verse 11, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods at all? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. But not only are they trading living water for stagnant water in a cistern. He goes on to say that the cistern that they try to pour their lives into is actually broken. It's actually broken. And the image that Jeremiah is giving on behalf of God is that when we pour our lives into anything else, it is as if we're pouring our lives into a cistern that, friends, you can see this much of the cistern. You see the whole, and so meanwhile, as you're pouring your hopes and your time and your talents and all your emotions into this thing, you can't see 15 feet below the surface that it's cracked. And that every little bit of what you put in eventually just seeps out the bottom. And it leaves, and guess what? It's not there when you go to it for life. And what Jeremiah is saying is that when we go after anything other than the God of the Bible, and the God who has created them and delivered them. And for the same God who is alive and at work in our world today, when we go for anything else, relationships, anything, that we're pouring our life and we're seeking to get water and life out of a cistern that's broken. You see, that kind of cistern was never meant to give you life. It will always take your life away over time. So what... Are the idols in your hearts? The word for idol in verse 5 in the Hebrew, it says idols and therefore become idolatrous. It's the same word for worthless. You've followed worthlessness and yourselves have become worthless. So what is it? What is it for you? What is it that you, that you seek daily to live for that keeps you going? What is the thing that if you fill in the blank and say, if I lose this... My life's going to be undone. Is it a guy? Is it a girl? Is it your resume, your hopes of getting into a grad school? Is it your parents' approval? Is it the approval of your peers, the acceptance of a certain group of people even here at TU? We thought popularity was only about junior high, but oh no. <laughs> we know a little too well, don't we? So what is it? I mean, what do you give yourself to? Tim Keller um, writes all about this in a book called Counterfeit Gods. And he says this. He says, The human heart takes good things, good things, like a successful career. And to that I would add good grades or a good resume or whatever. A successful career or love, material possessions, even family. Which These are all good things. And what we do in our hearts, in our minds, is we make them ultimate things. We make them things that, that we say, if this thing doesn't happen, I'm going to be crushed. Or I'm going to be so upset, I won't know what to do. Or for some of us, even in here at times, when this happens or if this happens, I might not want to go on. I might take my life. For some, that's been a real thought for some of y'all. I know it has. He goes on to say, our hearts deify those things. We make them gods. We put them at the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security. Safety and fulfillment if we attain them. And what he's really saying, and what, uh, what he's getting at, is that idols are usually way more subtle 
than things that we buy or usually things that we possess or little figurines from Africa or whatever it is. It's way more subtle, way more deceptive than that. Idols are things that, good things often, that our heart turns into ultimate things. He says, again, this is just a little bit longer. He says, we think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God. And friends, many of you, if not all of you in here, experientially know that. That you can make and take anything you want in your life and make it the end-all, be-all of your life. And you will pursue it doggedly until you get it. And if you fail, you will be crushed. Some of y'all have experienced that. I know your stories. You've told me about it. Some of you uh, in here have been idolized by your parents, okay? And I'm not, uh, I'm not just going to come down on your parents just, just to knock them. I'm not here to do that. But I just want you to bring you to the reality of what's happened to hopefully make sense of some of your life. Some of you have become for your parents their ultimate good, their identity, what they look to for life and for their own measure of approval as parents or success or whatever. And what this looks like is that and for some of you, it's still happening, and it's playing out well right now in your life, <coughs> is that they put ridiculous amounts of pressure on you in half of your whole life of making certain grades or of being so good at a certain sport so they can yell for you and see your name in the paper or so that you can get a certain job after you graduate and they can tell all their buddies, ah, oh, look, my son, he's going to work at Exxon. It's just not a big deal. He's making 80000 a year. That's pretty good, I guess. Uh, or my daughter, she just got into Cornell Med School. Isn't that cool? Y'all... Our parents sadly live for these things. This, this is one way that our parents' generation idolizes. And look, you're probably going to do it too if you have kids. <laughs> Sorry, we've got a two-year-old, and already I like want to show her off. It's like, she's probably the cutest baby ever. Uh, we're doing pretty good at being parents, um, just so you know. <laughs> but some, though, um, you don't even need this from your parents. Some of us do it to ourselves. And some of us heap this ridiculous pressure upon ourselves to perform and achieve and do all these things. Because some of you even may want to show your parents. Say, no, I can do it. Even though you've doubted me my whole life and you've never been behind me, I'm going, to, I'm going to prove you wrong. And so you come to TU and you put your whole heart and your life into making it. And I'm going to make an A. And I'm going to get into the grad school I want. And nothing is going to get in the way of that. So some of you have had the blinders on. And you are tunnel vision until you reach that. So that you can please your parents and others, or you just want to please yourself because you want to look cool and you want to be accepted and you want to show some uh, grad, grad school somewhere that people in the admissions office that they're, they're going to say this, oh, that's pretty good. All right, we'll put him over here in the save and in the interview. That's what you're living for, I'm just telling you. Um, you are going to become a face to them. And that's it, a face in the name. These are lesser gods, friends. They are lesser gods that we give ourselves to. Some still of us live for relationships and the approval of being accepted by whatever guy it is or whatever girl it is or whatever circle it is. And when you're not, you're devastated. You don't know what to do. You can't go on. You don't want to leave your room because it's embarrassing because maybe you were vulnerable and told them you liked him or told her that you liked her and she or he shut you down. Look, I know. I've been through that dance. It's hard. We give ourselves to these lesser things. So what's in it for you? What do your idols give you? What's on the other end? Is it joy? Is it lasting joy? 
Sadly, I know that for a lot of us, it's anxiety and depression and perfectionism and obsession and all of these things that come to control your life from day to day. Worry. This is the reality. This is where we live day to day. And it's because we give ourselves to so many other things, so many false gods. These false gods are so demanding of us. They are such broken cisterns that can't give us what we look to them to give us. That, friends, many of us are basically one plate drop away from utter anxiety, a panic attack, or the pit of depression. And so you live your lives so hurried and so busy because you have to balance all these things because if anything drops, you're going to either let yourself down or let somebody else down or let your resume down or whatever it is. And you're paralyzed. And you worry and you fret and you fear. When you fail the idols of your life, what do they do to you? What do they give you? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Friends, when life fails you and when you fail at life, are your idols there to bring you fresh life, fresh water, living water? Or are they like a stagnant pool that you can look at and say, yeah, I know it's in there, it's not much, but I'm going to keep giving myself to it. I know it's stupid, but I can't stop. Really? You, you really want to live like that forever? Finally tonight, we see that God is showing the Israelites what these idols and the broken cisterns ultimately give us. Let's reread verses 20 through 25. Quick, I'm going to skip a little bit. But it says, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. And God's talking about his, his delivering them from Egypt. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, that's true. On every high hill and under every green tree you bow down like a whore. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say I'm not unclean, I've not gone after the bales? Look at your way of life in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey. Yeah, yeah. 25, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless. For I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. Friends, here's the end picture of this. Israel themselves realized that after they had given themselves to these false gods, these idols long enough, that they then looked up and realized it's hopeless. I can't change, they said. It's hopeless, for I've loved foreigners. I've gone after them so long. I don't know what it's like to not do this. I don't know what it's like to go after you anymore, God. And for us in here, we can't imagine doing life another way. Some of us have been so busy for so long and so concerned with these other things in the world and made them ultimate things. So much of them are good things, but we've made them ultimate things. And we've sought our identity in them. We've done this for so long that we can't imagine changing. We can't imagine not doing this. It's too fearful to think about anything else. Because we just don't know what life would be like any other way. We don't know what life is like in that moving stream. We don't. It's scary. It's unpredictable. You can't see beneath the surface. So what do we do? Well, we shop. We spend lots of money online. Go to Utica Square, spend a couple hundred bucks, just kind of disappear for a little bit. We get lost in an online uh, 
virtual world of video games for a day at a time. Just to try to ignore what's happening around us. To try to escape for just a little while so you can maybe feel some sense of enjoyment and excitement. We go to, to Adderall and to pills, and I know there are some of y'all who need that stuff. I really do. But I also know there are some of y'all who look to this stuff as, as a crutch to calm you out amidst the anxiety that has come from following after so many other gods. Some of you go and find a relationship. Go hook up with somebody. Some of you go find your computer and masturbate. It happens, y'all. We seek for life in all these other places. We seek for a glimpse of glory. A glimpse of hopefulness amidst life's despair. It is hopeless, it says. For I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. And so God let the people of Israel go. He let them go and gave them with their idolatry exactly what they wanted. They wanted to follow other gods. And so he ultimately exiled them to Babylon. He sent them off to this other country and let them serve them for a while. But friends, the story of Scripture does not leave them in Babylon. Because this is what happens. God would go to them. Jeremiah would say just a few chapters later, and he would say this. He would say, Then... Someday in the future, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for their sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests. Remember the ones who had forgotten about God. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. When would this day come? When would it be? When would Israel finally be given Another shot. Hope. When would it happen? When would they be satisfied in His goodness? Some of you remember a story from last semester. Other of you, maybe you've never heard it all. But there's a story in the Bible about a Samaritan woman who was a harlot. She herself was a whore. Her life had been defined by relationship after relationship, giving herself over to numerous men. And this man named Jesus comes to her and meets her at a well. And she couldn't believe he was talking to her in the first place because she was unclean. She had been a whore. But this man named Jesus comes to her and tells her this. He offers her a water of refreshment. Living water, really, is what he was offering her. Some of you know Jesus. Some of you know this Jesus who has come to you and offered you a living water. Refreshment for your weary soul in this dry land that we live in. And some of you don't. And that's okay. We're glad you're here. My encouragement to you tonight, for both of you, is actually the same thing. It is this. is to turn from your lesser gods. To turn from whatever it is that you seek for in life. And turn to the living God. The God of living water. Jesus' words to the woman are His words to you. He looks at her in John 4 and says, Whoever drinks of the water, the water that I give him, will never be thirsty again forever. I will become in him or her a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. Friends, Jesus will satisfy you. That is the message of this story. That God will come and be living water to your dry soul. Would you pray with me?
Holy Spirit, we come before you and ask you to do something that, that I can't do through my most eloquent words. And, and I ask you to come and speak to our hearts and come and apply this message from your word to our hearts that we might believe it.